As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to this replay of Ask N.T. Write Anything, where we go back into the archives to bring you the best of the thought and theology of Tom Wright, answering questions submitted by you, the listener. You can find more episodes as well as many more resources for exploring faith at premierunbelievable.com, and registering there will unlock access through the newsletter to updates, free bonus videos, and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. And now for today's replay of Ask N.T. Wright Anything. Well, welcome back to the show, Tom. It's uh, it's great to see you, even though we're not together, as we have been on many an occasion in the past, in in the flesh, as it were. Um, you've, you've been doing this for an awful long time now, haven't you? These, these meetings yes. on Zoom. I, I'm sure they take their toll, though, don't they? Yes. I mean, we've had six months plus of it now, haven't we? And uh, even during my summer holiday, when we were up in Scotland, um, because I had pre-recorded some lectures which were going out in a big seminar, I had to be present for the Q&A at the end of each lecture, even though I pre-recorded the material oh, itself. <laughs> and so I was sitting there in a little Scottish hotel, um, hunched over a, a computer and a camera, <laughs> and I was just thinking, really, it's time for a break from this? Oh. Um, but at the moment, um, that's not likely. Um, it, it is at least able to have me and, and other people in places where we we actually, even without this, we wouldn't have been flying around the world to do these various things. So I suppose that's a good thing, but it is very tiring. And people are doing it a lot, um, continually report that Zoom fatigue is a real thing. And I've suffered it a few occasions when I've come out reeling from a session. Yeah, I can imagine. Because yeah. you're, you're, you're having to concentrate so hard, aren't yeah. you, when, when you do exactly. these sorts of things. Um, uh, <laughs> that's, it's the blessing and the curse of technology. Uh, you can do anything from anywhere, but it also means you can do anything from anywhere. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I used to enjoy it, getting on planes and thinking, ha, huh, nobody can email me. Isn't this wonderful? And now they've introduced it so that you can spend the entire you, journey. Exactly. On you can't escape it on the flights anymore either. Right. No. Right. It's, it's one of those things. Um, well, look, I, I can't provide the, the coffee and the tea and the, the, the bananas and, and croissants, but I see you've managed to sort yourself out with some coffee yourself, and I've got mine here as well. Um, I have to confess, before we get into today's questions, which are on sort of current affairs, cultural issues, politics, and so on, um, uh, one, of, one of the things I enjoyed seeing during the lockdown particularly was uh, the bookcase credibility uh, Twitter accounts, which uh, has been tweeting uh, all kinds of people uh, because they're all appearing in their studies and offices with bookcases behind them. 
um, and you featured, you, you, you were, you know, <laughs> this great honor of being featured on the bookcase credibility Twitter thread. And this was the, <laughs> this was the comment because it, it's a very tongue in cheek account and, and sort of makes, um, uh, gives, gives the idea of what, what the psychology is of the person based on their bookshelves. Uh, this says Tom Wright, a cavernous amount of credibility here. The books are like perhaps roosting on the walls of Tom's mind. A few flutter about behind him like stray thoughts. The lamps, one on and one off, tell us that we must choose areas to illuminate. Our minds work best when focused, which I, I, I thought was quite a good description, actually, that's, in some that's, ways. But that's quite know. nice. I mean, one of the reasons that Maggie and I moved to this house nearly a year ago was that when we looked around it and discovered it had a study with significant bookshelves already in place, that was a kind of a sigh of relief because wherever <laughs> I go, you know, I, I did... I we got rid of maybe, I don't know, three or 4,000 books before we left Scotland. Wow. Um, uh, and, and there's still some actually up in Scotland waiting for us to do something else with. But this room has most of my academic ones to do with biblical studies, Judaica and classics, and some uh, reference books. Um, the rest, the philosophy, the history, the culture, etc., is all in my study in Wycliffe, which is about the same size. So uh, multiply this by two and you've got my, my current <laughs> kit. <laughs> yes, we're just seeing a small selection of them well. <laughs> on your webcam <laughs> at the moment. Um, speaking of which, actually, when we did that lovely live stream with you uh, a few months wow. back, Tom, um, someone asked, I'd love an episode of the show where Tom just takes us through his bookshelves. <laughs> now, that could be a very long episode, but, um, but perhaps we could do something. We could do a, yeah, the highlights. <laughs> it, it could. Um, my, my younger son, who is training for the ministry at Wycliffe Hall now, um, came and gave me two or three hours of slave labour, reorganising the section on St Paul, which is back <laughs> there, um, and getting all the general books on Paul into alphabetical order and getting all the commentaries in the canonical order with the Romans ones in alphabetical order of author. And I found myself doing exactly that with him saying, oh, there's so-and-so. I remember meeting him at a conference and he said this and, you know, because so, so many of those books particularly have quite powerful memories from my earlier life when I was doing my doctorate and that kind of thing. Yes, well, journeys through my bookshelves yeah. coming from Tom Wright soon. Um, but let's turn to some of these questions that have yes. come in. Um, we're, we're recording today's show sort of in the run-up to the US election. Um, obviously, that is filling our news feeds along with all the coronavirus stuff as well. Um, and and the latest that we know at this point of, of recording, Tom, is that um, President Trump has returned, apparently healthy, to the White House, having had this bout of um, COVID-19. Um, obviously, uh, there's still uh, about a month or so before the election itself. Um, so why don't we start with a question on this front? Um, I mean, before we have this question, actually, from Michelle in Washington, any thoughts generally on these news events, this election, which comes at such a, an interesting time, obviously. It's, in I mean, it's a fascinating thing. I felt uh, more or less every American election for the last 20, 30 years um, that, that what happens here will affect the whole geopolitical globe. Um, and th this is hugely serious, whether you live in Korea or Germany or um, South Africa or Latin America or the Amazon rainforest, whoever gets to win in Washington, um, that will have a knock-on effect for the rest of the world. Um, that's simply the fact of the case. But then it always strikes me as rather odd and amusing that only Americans vote in this election because <laughs> the rest of us are going to be affected by it, but we don't have a say. 
And um, this goes back, of course, to the 18th century, when one of the great cries of the American colonists against the British was no taxation without representation. And so th th there's a kind of oddity about this. And I think we have to address that globally. And this is, of course, what the United Nations was supposed to do, which is why many in America don't like the United Nations, because they, they want to be able to do what they want to do and not have somebody else, some strange person from another country, telling them how it should be. And I think we need to be able to talk about these issues. I know it's not easy. And we British, when we had a navy that ruled the world, we didn't want anyone else telling us what to do. Thank you very much. Um, but we live in a dangerous global village and we need to be clear that we can all actually, if not support directly, nevertheless be comfortable with the people who are making decisions that affect the rest of us. And that, that's a very important consideration, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. Well, look, here's the question from Michelle in Washington, who says, is it wrong to not vote? I can't in good conscience put my name behind either Republican or Democratic candidate in the upcoming US election, because both of them stand for things I disagree with. But my evangelical upbringing has taught me that it is my duty as a Christian and a woman to vote. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And Michelle adds, hashtag, write Briley for president 2020. Well, I'm not sure we're in the running for this year's, but who knows? Four years time, we may be on the ticket, uh, were it not for our British. I, I, think, I think, as we all know from Trump's <laughs> attacks on uh, Obama, you actually have to be born in the States <laughs> to be qualified. So very happily, I'm ruled out. And I just make you I'm um, very happy about that, yes. But... Um, uh, yeah, I think the idea of it being a Christian duty to vote, um, it, that's a kind of a, I, I see it as a second order Christian duty. I mean, yes, if you can and if it's possible, but I don't think you've committed some huge sin if you don't. I think that there's a, a, a very large conversation to be had about how from the 18th century onwards with the rise of modern Western democracies, it's been assumed that um, now that you've got the vote, and of course time was when women didn't and time was when other people didn't, um, then, then you really have a, a, a duty to use it. And I would broadly support that. Um, I'm not sure it's a specifically Christian duty. The New Testament is written to people, many of whom didn't have any sort of voting rights at all. And I think people would have said, if, if you have that chance to influence the way the world is going, then of course you should use it. But I think here's the problem. When we vote for somebody, we are not saying that we agree with them about everything and we support them in everything that we think they want to do. We are simply, it's a much lower grade thing than that. It's simply saying, I think at this moment in our country's history, we need the kind of leadership which broadly this person or this party might produce. And if one looks at two, or possibly as in the case of Britain, three or four parties, and you look at them all and you say, well, I think they're all going in the wrong direction, then it might well be a Christian duty um, to, to, to spoil the ballot paper or to write none of the above or something like that. Um, and, and maybe there are times when that's what one has to do. Um, that's a fairly ineffective protest because that vote uh, then just goes in the bin, doesn't actually do anything. Um, but maybe if somebody believes strongly enough that that is the case, they need to join together with other people who believe that and find some other way forward. This is a very difficult, creaky process because a binary vote is a very, very, very blunt instrument. And the chances of finding two candidates, one of whom you absolutely agree with and the other one of whom you absolutely don't agree with is, is fairly minimal. But I think this emerges from 
the ideology of the 18th century, which was basically, we'll get rid of kings and we'll get rid of bishops and we'll get rid of all these high ups telling us what to do. And we, the people, will decide. And then utopia will arrive, won't it? Because that was the, the, the sort of sense that once we stop these people with power and money squashing us all into shape and let people be themselves, then it'll all work out fine. And so then it's sort of assumed that there must be one candidate or one party who is basically just two or three steps from that utopia, which we know we all want. Mm. We in Britain have actually never really believed that, um, or hardly ever. Um, we have tended to think we are voting for the least worst. And once you say we're voting for the least worst, then I think, Ah, there's a kind of a sigh of relief. Okay, I do not have to scrutinize every bit of this person's voting record or whatever. I simply have to assess what the options are and what will be best for the world and for my country mm -hmm. um, in the current state of affairs. I mean, if I may follow up with, with a follow-up question, I'm, I'm airing on my own unbelievable show, my other podcast, um, this coming weekend, uh, a debate between David French, who's uh, a Christian commentator, in the US and a never Trumper, uh, though he is an evangelical, fairly conservative. Um, uh, and uh, Eric Metaxas, who's become rather well known recently for his, his very pro-Trump positions. And, um, and uh, essentially, the debate that they had, which will be airing, is um, David Trump, uh, sorry, David French saying uh, a person, a person of Donald Trump's moral character, Christians would never have dreamed, you know, 20 years ago of supporting this person as someone fit for the White House. Uh, Metaxas' point essentially was he's getting things done and he's giving a lot of evangel he's keeping his promises to a lot of the evangelical Christians who put him in power. Um, what's your view on that? It does, to what extent are we voting people in on their moral character? To what extent are we voting them in as people who get things done, whether they do it in the way we like necessarily or not? It's, it's very difficult because, of course, I only know what I know about Donald Trump through what comes across sure. in the media, which is, as we all know, heavily selected, both one way and another. Um, I know Eric Metaxas a bit. I don't know your other um, uh, correspondent, but um, uh, Eric and I have had little bits of this conversation in the past. Um, so it's very difficult for me at a distance, uh, never having sat down with Donald Trump or whatever, um, to say very much. However, um, I have friends, people I've known for years, who have worked in Washington for years, um, including some staunch Republicans, who have said very clearly, this man, it's not a matter of his moral character, it's a matter of his mental capacity. Here's a, matter, a man who deals with um, television news headlines and Twitter feeds, and seems to lash out in all directions. And uh, he... The, this is other people saying this, not me, okay. but they're people who know the situation well, that, that he's a bit like a rogue elephant. And if he's pricked this way, he'll swing that way. And if, if he hears a, um, an alarm go off, he'll rush in that direction. And this is, this is not a happy position to be in. Um, and it, the, the question of whether he supports evangelical agendas or not, well, he does and he doesn't is the answer to that. 
And there is a, a quite different question about the way in which many bits of what calls itself evangelicalism in America have gone with particular cultural tides without necessarily realizing that. Um, and this is something we might come on to later in, or another podcast when we're talking about the whole Black Lives Matter business and about how the fact is that these are, broadly speaking, white evangelicals, and I should say white conservative Roman Catholics as well, who have seen Trump as the kind of, the person who will guarantee certain moral policies. I mean, I think of the abortion issue in terms of evangelicals, I think of um, attitudes to the present state of Israel. And I know there are many Jewish people in America and in the state of Israel who are horrified at what Trump has been doing in that regard, Equally well, there are others who say, at last, here's a president who, yeah. who gets the point because yeah. America yeah. needs to support Well, well that was certainly, you know, in, in, in this upcoming debate that I'll be airing, Eric Metaxas very much sees Trump as having been a champion of, of um, Israel um, and also, you know, of religious freedom. And indeed, uh, he believes he's taking a sensible approach to what, again, uh, Metaxas sees as a sort of left-wing cultural Marxism of the sort of Black Lives Matter movement and so on. Yeah. Now, now we've got questions on these, actually, that, I, that, it, that it kind of segues into, um, helpfully. Kelly in Colorado, USA, wants to ask about um, if Christians or Christian-owned businesses should be denying services to people that don't agree with their Christian beliefs. I'm thinking of some high-profile cases in the US where Businesses refuse to make wedding cakes for gay couples. I understand that people and businesses want to be set apart from the surrounding culture, but isn't business simply business? Can't imagine Paul denying someone a tent because of their beliefs. I'd love to hear your input on this very complex topic in America. And yes, yeah, so this this touches on this, the issue of religious freedom and this. Yeah. some of these cases have gone to the Supreme Court and we get our own versions of them here in the UK as well. What, yeah. what's, what's your feeling on where the lines are drawn on these cases, Tom? Yes, I mean, there, there's several different issues bundled up in there. And as with all contemporary hot button issues, it's very dangerous simply to lurch one way and say, I'm going to check all the boxes down this side or all the boxes down that side. We have to take things case by case. And the one that I remember from the UK was a couple uh, in Northern Ireland, I think it was, who, um, a gay couple who um, rather, ost rather ostentatiously um, were trying to put um, uh, manufacturer on the spot with with a similar request um, and they were clearly pushing to make it a co-celebre um, knowing what the response would be and then being able to say that this shop was guilty of whether hate speech or this, this was the ashes bakery case the, the specific cake that they were being asked to make was in support of um, gay marriage being legalized in northern ireland which right, had, right, right. had not happened up to that point yeah, and yeah, yeah. Um, and they they eventually and the the, the yes the business declined the request and there was this went all the way to yes, yes. the highest courts yes yeah. and and of course i mean it would have been perfectly easy for the people concerned to go to some other cake company that wouldn't have cared anything about that okay. and they clearly were targeting people who they knew would find this really mm. difficult mm. in order to put them on the spot and and this goes on and on and on because both sides can play this game putting people in a position where they are forced to declare their hand this way or that on key issues um and th this is this is deeply unhealthy but i suppose Every generation, every century, um, there are key issues that the majority of the population really believe this absolutely matters. I mean, 150 years ago, uh, my right, 180 years ago, maybe, 
you wouldn't have been able to uh, be a fellow of an Oxford college or indeed an undergraduate in an Oxford college unless you would give your assent to the 39 articles of the Church of England. So that if you were a Methodist, you couldn't. If you were a Roman Catholic, you couldn't. Certainly if you were a Jew, you couldn't, etc., etc. And we, we forget how quickly that has totally changed. But every generation has certain things which it sees as necessary for the preservation of the health of the society. And for many generations, um, giving your assent to the 39 articles of the Church of England was seen as necessary for the health of society. And, and if you can't do that, well, sorry, you can't, you're not welcome at these, at these august institutions. And now, of course, that's totally blown away. And you'd have the reverse, really, that if somebody was holding to a very strong Christian line, um, oh, well, maybe that's hate speech because you disapprove of this or you don't like that or whatever. Um, but it, it, it's as though it's very difficult to get to a sort of equilibrium where we all really believe in total freedom of speech for everyone. You know, I don't want or expect to hear people marching up and down the street outside my room here shouting anti-Semitic slogans, or for instance. Um, now, if they were simply making some sort of a protest about something going on in the state of Israel, uh, persecution of Palestinians in the occupied territories or whatever. Um, I would understand that, but I would say we're in very dodgy territory here because there is a history of anti-Semitism in Britain and it is actually quite alive and well in certain quarters. And I would want to ban anything that was going to be stirring that up. Um, and I would hope that the police would intervene and that the courts would take action. But then when you apply this out beyond that, you know, academic freedom. Um, I've seen this debated in terms of when you, to, to keep with the same sort of area, when you get Holocaust deniers, people who say that only a few Jews were killed and they were all elderly anyway or whatever, um, and one wants to say, no, sorry, here's the evidence. There are libraries full of the evidence and there are photographs, there's everything, et cetera, et cetera. But the answer to somebody who is talking nonsense is not, we will ban them, but let us have the debate. I'm speaking in the middle of a great university. That's what a university is for, not to protect people from ideas that they feel threatening, but to say, let's have the discussion. Let's look at the evidence. Let's marshal the arguments and see where we come out. That has always been my view, and God willing, it always will be. In other words, I remember my uh, old teacher, George Caird, who, who quoted at me more than once, uh, I totally disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Now, that's the position that we would all like to be in. There are times, times of war, times of real trouble, where you can't hold on to that position because it's actually too dangerous for too many people. And those are judgment calls. Um, but in general, in Western society, we have aimed at that freedom of speech, yes. which is a precious and rather a delicate flower, and we should not be trampling on it. I'm wandering off topic. But well, I but, I, but I was going to bring us back to Kelly's specific question yeah, in that yeah. sense, that, that obviously in this case, rather like the one in Northern Ireland, um, there, was a, there was someone's, if you like, rights of conscience. You know, they didn't feel in good conscience that they yeah. could put a particular message onto a cake as they were a Christian. Yeah. And Kelly is saying, but isn't a business a business, you know? Is Paul yeah, going to refuse sure. to a, a, a business is a business, but I mean, uh, selling newspapers is a business. Um, newspapers used to have uh, quite a strong commitment to fact checking and to truth telling, and that has slid away in many cases quite a long way. 
and newspapers will now host advertisements for all sorts of bizarre things because the advertisers pay money, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, at what point does a Christian in the newspaper business say, um, I really believe in truth and we want to have these facts checked. And if somebody says, oh, but this is a great story. Well, never mind. We can't. So mm -hmm. there are always going to be points of tension. Um, and I, I can think of, of many other things where, where business is business, but if somebody sells you a car that actually they know has got something wrong with it, which is going to give out in 50 miles time, then I would say they, as a Christian, have a responsibility to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, so th it, it, the lines are going to be drawn in different yes, places. Yeah. In, in different I, I, I mean, my personal feel, feeling on this is that I don't think in either of these cases, uh, the, the, the Christian proprietors of these businesses were refusing to serve the people on the basis of their sexuality. It was yeah, rather yeah. the message that was being, yeah. they were being asked yeah, to put yeah, on the yeah. cake. And, and likewise, uh, Paul was approached by a Roman to, to make a tent. I'm sure he'd have no problem with that. But if the Roman asked them to emblazon it with Caesar is Lord, he might say, no, yes. I, I don't think that's the kind of message I want to put yes. on my tents. Um, that's a very interesting, uh, very interesting suggestion because many of the tents that would be made and sold by people like Paul would be for units of the army. Um, does that mean that the Paul approved of the Roman army? Well, no, he probably didn't, though he probably did think that having a strong um, justice system was better than wild, vigilante, um, out-of-control militias roaming around, which is often has often historically been the alternative. So there are many, many different things. Um, and I think then it is a matter of conscience. It is a matter of Christian teaching. And uh, Paul is very good on not trampling on people's consciences in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. Yes, you're free to eat any meat um, that's for sale in the market. But if somebody says, hey, that was offered to an idol, then their conscience is at risk here and mm. you shouldn't be trampling on that. Yes. I mean, again, I don't want to dwell too long on it, but when I've, I've had discussions online with some of my, my atheist friends mm. on this, um, I've, I've said, well, I, 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 I personally would hold the right of a Christian couple not to, to, to have to put messages on that they disagreed with as I was equally uh, say an atheist printer has no can refuse uh, a young earth creation sort of banner that is being, they're being asked to produce you know they might not particularly want their business to be used for, for that yeah. message yeah. Uh, and, and I think we have to see it from from different perspectives before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast I have a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter as you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash ntwrite. That's premierinsight.org forward slash ntwrite. Thank you.
let's move on. There, there is another very important issue um, that, that we've got in among the questions for this episode before we finish. And and it's returning to the issue of um, Black Lives Matter, um, some of the issues around race that have obviously been dominating our headlines recently. Let's start with Kirsten and John in Liverpool, who say, is checking your privilege a biblical concept? I'd love to hear Tom comment on the Black Lives Matter movement versus the phrase some people are using, all lives matter. And is there a better theological language you can, we can use in this idea of privilege? Yes, um, I need to be brought up to speed with what people now are meaning by checking your privilege, because I think checking there... Um, doesn't isn't that referring isn't that an americanism where when you go into a, a restaurant you check your coat at the door you give your coat isn't that what's going on there I, it could well be yes yes I, I think i think it could refer to either in a sense you need to yeah. um or you need to be aware of, aware of, uh, yes, of, yes, of your yes, privilege but, but whenever I, you come into a conversation like this right right yeah. but but i was i was thinking of it um more in terms of you know like people say well when you go into church church you have to check your brain in at the door or whatever right yes um, it uh, could be uh, i i i wouldn't know to be honest exactly which one it refers to but I, I they have a similar sort of connotation i yeah, think yeah <clears throat> i i did a uh a lecture, a written lecture, an article, um, the time of the George Floyd crisis, which is on the Wycliffe Hall website, which says a lot of what I would want to say about this in much more detail than I can say it here. But I've been reflecting on it since and in discussion with friends and indeed one or two family members who are very concerned about all this. There's a couple of points I really want to stress. One is that right from the start, the Christian movement as in Antioch in Syria, when Paul and Barnabas were teaching there in the, in, the, um, in the 40s of the first century, Christianity was a social experiment in multicultural, multi-ethnic, um, quasi-familial living together. People, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. Um, and in the ancient Mediterranean world, color was not an issue. Um, because people of all um, shades of, of pigmentation would be moving around through the Middle Eastern world. And so at no point in the New Testament do we get any binaries, certainly, of black and white or anything like that. that that's very much a modern thing. That's the second point I'll come on to. But this vision of the church, and think of the book of Revelation, um, a great multitude of every nation and kindred and tribe and tongue, everybody all together, all singing in praise of God and the Lamb, and acting as and thinking as and praying as a single multiple family. Um, that's been the vision of Christianity from the beginning. How come we forgot that? And I think partly it's because in the Middle Ages, the church was either the great Orthodox church in the East or the great Catholic church in the West, and it became a European phenomenon um, living to itself with not many tentacles going out into the world where you'd find people of significantly different culture or color. Um, and then particularly the tragedy of the 16th century when people said we want the Bible and the liturgy in our own language, which absolutely I want the Bible and the liturgy in my own language. But that resulted in the setting up of churches from the 16th century onwards, which were German churches, Polish churches, Portuguese churches, etc., etc. So that 
in London in the 17th century, you would have these different churches, French churches, whatever, where people of that nationality would meet to worship in their own language. But I think that kind of tacitly gave permission to say we will have different churches according to who your parents were and which country you came from. And that then has produced doctrinal divergences of various sorts. And then we need to know the history because it's so important here. And then with the rise in the 18th and 19th century of social Darwinism, the idea of the evolution of species and guess what, different human species. And one of the reasons behind evolutionism, not evolution, but evolutionism was an implicit desire by people in Western Europe and North America to discover by spurious means, of course, that they were the kind of elite race and that other peoples, well, they might be sort of human, but they were a second order or third or fourth order race. And that's the stuff that's at the heart of it. And if the church had been true to its founding charter, i.e. the New Testament, i.e. Galatians and Romans and, 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 and Matthew 8, where Jesus says many will come from East and West and Revelation, we would have seen this one coming a mile off. And we would have said right from the start, we cannot do that because we are a single family across all these boundaries. The church has not done that. And when the church doesn't do part of its core mission, we shouldn't be surprised if other people come along and say, we're going to fill in the gaps. And so when people grumble about Black Lives Matter or Antifa, say, oh, they're Marxists or they're anti-family or whatever. Well, yes, we have left a vacuum there. And if other people are filling it with their ideologies, shame on us. We should have been first in the field. So that's, I'll be more brief with the second thing. That's the first thing. Yes, sure. The second thing is, I actually checked recently in the big Oxford English Dictionary, which I have down there with the magnifying glass and so on, the use of the word white to describe people who, whatever they are, they aren't white. The only actually white people are dead people because most of us are brown or pink or something or other, and we change color according to moods and health and so on, as has often been pointed out. So who thought of calling us white? And the answer is it goes back again to the 17th and 18th century where explorers finding, particularly in Africa, people of very, very dark skin started to use this as a binary, black, white, and to import into that all kinds of evaluative comment. And we need to get underneath that historically. And instead of just checking your privilege, see where this came from to understand it and then to be able. And I don't think we can do this easily. I think we can only do it if the church as a whole gets behind it and says, our charter from the beginning was a single family of every nation and language and tribe and tongue. What we've seen in the modern multicultural movements is the attempt to get the results of the gospel without allegiance to Jesus himself. It can't be done and it produces a backlash. And that's where we are right now. Yes, indeed. And and I suppose the problem is, and perhaps this is what Kirsten and John are hinting at, is that it, it, uh, some of the attempts to help and to, to bring people together and, and to overcome some of the inherent racist racism that does exist in culture and so on is is by making people aware of the privileges that may come with their particular mm. skin tone with the culture that they're part of and have, have yeah. grown up in and so on absolutely. and this is the idea behind this you know white privileges is, is a phrase oh, that has, has you know been in common parlance recently yeah. 
but is that a biblical so are you saying that isn't a biblical concept or that it is a concept but that there's a better way of understanding it no um the, the idea of being privileged socially culturally whatever no doubt that has happened in many cultures and uh you could say that paul actually trades on the fact that he's a roman citizen at certain points in order to make particular points although he's very much aware of the irony and the ambiguity of doing that but paul came from the jewish people who themselves believed uh, with good biblical basis that they were the people of the creator god the people who existed for the sake of the rest of the world and so and this this has always been around as as kind of a possibility. And one of the great moves that's made in the New Testament is to take that idea and say, now it is Jesus who sums that up. And the crucifixion of Jesus actually dethrones and demolishes the idea of privilege and says, no, if anyone wants to be great, they must be the servant. If anyone wants to be privileged, they must be the slave of all. Um, and, and so what we see in the New Testament is the demolition of that. And of course, because the church, uh, and, and I, I fear particularly both evangelicals and Catholics, by focusing on the idea being how do our souls get to heaven? We have ignored what we're supposed to be doing here and now, how we're supposed to be living as a family here and now. Um, but it's absolutely central to the New Testament vision. And, and so I think the, the, the trouble then is, as with some other things in society at the moment, if you simply say, oh, uh, it's this privilege thing, and we need to be aware of that, da, 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 this is all preaching moralism. It's preaching the law in the old theological sense. And uh, actually, when you do that, <laughs> um, you ought also to show here is how you repent and here is how you can uh, amend your life. But very often, people who preach this rather heavy moralism, they don't have any sort of amendment. It's like certain movements in postmodern morality where just certain people are inherently guilty. Some feminists, by no means all, have basically said all men are guilty. And then if you're a male, there's nothing you can do about that. You're just guilty. That's how it is. There's no redemption. There's no redemption. Exactly. So the church somehow urgently needs to find ways of articulating and living, living as a family which redeems this very dangerous culture because otherwise the church can easily collapse into separate groups of the like-minded which often means the same skin colors and and that is a denial of something which is central not peripheral but central in the new testament we're slightly over time but i did there is one more question i just want to ask um because i I know that you've recently endorsed uh, a book by esau macaulay um it's called i believe reading while black um and he was one of your phd students um but um so this could could simply ask answer christy in tennessee's question who says with the current racial injustice debate in the united states i'm reminded that i need to add diverse voices to my readings does tom recommend any books by black theologians yes and certainly esau's book which is just i think it's just out now is one i strongly recommend uh, esau grew up in the south he's he's an african-american from uh, an old african-american christian family and suffered all the things that African-Americans in the South have traditionally suffered, uh, the the sneers and all the rubbish and the being pulled over while driving and and all this sort of stuff, which we so-called white people basically haven't had to suffer. Um, And Esau somehow has come through with a lovely Christian testimony 
and a first-class intellect. I mean, his work on Galatians and on um, Messianism and all that is very, very interesting stuff. I have learned a lot from him, as one does from one's PhD students. He's now teaching at the moment at Wheaton College in Illinois, and Wheaton lucky to have him. So I would strongly recommend Esau as a good place to start, and from there you could move out, because there are many different shades of opinion, of course, uh, within um, African-American writers at the moment. Well, there's one recommendation at least. And I'll make sure there's a link to that book and indeed to the article you referenced that's on the Wycliffe website, I believe, um, that you've written on racial justice. But um, hope that gives you some starting points, Christy. Um, And thanks to all the others who've been in touch on similar issues. that's all for today's show. Thank you very much, Tom. It's always um, a delight to be with you. Glad to be back, even though we're only doing this over Zoom <laughs> as usual. But um, uh, thanks for being with us and we'll, we'll see you next time. Yes, indeed.